Okay, so today we're talking to Erin Blasco, the blog and social media manager at the National Museum of American History. Thanks for joining us, Erin. Thanks for um, having me. Of course. <laughs> so you have more of a background in museum education. How did you become interested in new media? Um, I do have a museum education background. Um, I went to museum studies at CW, and I did as many classes in museum education as I could. Um, and then I got a job doing public programs at the National Postal Museum. And I noticed that the only people who could come to the programs were people who were local to the museum um, or who accidentally stumbled upon it. And I felt like programs should have a national um, reach because we were called the National Postal Museum. So I kind of wanted a national audience. So I got to start doing um, a little bit of social media to kind of bring programs to the public, not just in person, but online. Great, thank you. Um, so in your role at the American History Museum, um, can you tell us more about how you collaborate both within your team and also other departments in the museum? I do a lot of collaborating. Um, let's see, where to start? So I guess the first thing, the first way in which I collaborate is that um, I am not a history expert, especially not an American history expert. So I can't share anything with the public without help from people who are the experts. So I get yeah. to work with a lot of curators and educators and collections managers and just people who are smarter than me about American history, which is really great. I really like that part of it. Um, and so, you know, I publish the blog. We publish about two or three times a week. And that is written mostly by people who know more about history than me. <laughs> so I get to work with them. Like, you know, what, what's your idea for your blog post? What do you want to share? What would be, you know, a really good topic for you? Um, what objects do you think would work? Um, and how do you want to tell your story? So I get to kind of facilitate content that way. And I really like it. Um, I also get asked a lot about... Um, you know, we're doing an exhibit. How do we kind of like incorporate um, social media into the exhibition? So I get to work with the exhibit team um, a lot, which I love. And then I don't have a like a huge team myself. I'm part of a pretty big team in the education department. Um, but I do have two people who work on really specific parts of social media. Um, one does business history and one does philanthropy history. And then um, or I guess the same person does business history and philanthropy history, and then um, the other one does democracy and sort of those sort of topics. So we okay. get to work together to, like, make sure those focuses come through. So collaboration is a really big part of it, um, which is partially why I'm so bad at email, because my inbox is full, because I work with so many different people. Um, but I love that about my job, so it's great. Thank you. So... Um you have you noticed a difference in social media preferences between generations and how do you plan new media initiatives that appeal to all ages let's see well i consider the fact that i probably can't reach all ages mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the social networks we use you have to be at least 13 sometimes 18 to sign up for an account so we're probably not going to reach, like, little kids directly through social media. We might meet them, reach them through their parents. So we do do stuff for parents that's like, hey, share this with your kids. But very rarely am I posting, like, 
hey, five-year-olds, you know, enjoy this piece of content or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't try to reach everybody, um, but we do try to articulate target audiences for each project or program that we do. Um, we do a lot of uh, just trying to reach our own audiences who've raised their hands to say that they want to hear from us. So I'm sure you're familiar with the way that, like, Facebook, for example, um, controls who sees your posts. And the majority of people who like your Facebook page may not see your content very regularly. So I put a lot of work into just reaching the people who said that they wanted to be reached, <laughs> as well as growing our target audiences, too. Um, so right now we're really focusing on, um, since we have this person who's focusing on the history of philanthropy in America, who cares about the history of philanthropy? Who wants to learn about that? Who, can, who will find that useful or interesting? Um, and kind of brainstorming, like, how do we reach these audiences? Where are they? What are they doing on social? Do they care about history? Um, so we have to do a lot of that. Um, and also when I'm considering reaching new audiences, I have to think about the fact that we probably can't start from scratch with a new social network very regularly. So if we discover that for a project where we want to reach a certain demographic, maybe younger people, you know, maybe we want to use Snapchat, but then we have to maintain that Snapchat account forever, or at least until Snapchat, you know, isn't the cool <laughs> thing anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you have to think about, do you want to do daily content, weekly content? Where is that going to come from? Does our sense of humor match that social media platform? Um, so that can be really tricky to have that conversation about, should we join a new social network? Um, because sustaining it is so much work. Um, that usually I'm voting against doing that, even if we know that that network would be the best way to meet that audience. Um, but a lot of times we are looking for the audiences that we can intersect with. Um, I also, you know, the people who follow us currently, I'd love to learn more about them. Um, you know, there's a lot of privacy rules in the Smithsonian and at most museums, so you don't get to stalk people quite as much. You know, you don't get to learn as much about them as you wish you could. Um, but we do do surveys. We kind of look at their bios occasionally, see who's following us. Um, but, I, you know, I would love to learn more what they want so we can make sure that we're bringing that to them. But you often have to pay a company to sort of do that research um, or, or really stop what you're doing and maintaining your everyday social media presence to kind of do that research. So who we're reaching, who we're targeting, that kind of thing. I'm really fascinated by those questions. I don't always have the best tools to reach the right people or know who I'm reaching. Was there another part to that question that I didn't answer? <laughs> no, no, that was great. Thank you. Um, and so you've already mentioned several social media platforms. Um, and since you manage the entire social media pre- presence at the American History Museum, um, is, are there some platforms that are more challenging to strategize for? Is there something that sticks out as, you know, just something that is, um, has been a challenge to manage? Let's see. I mean, the, so we have a blog, um, mm-hmm. and the blog was one of the first social media platforms that we started. Um, at the museum, which we started actually, I think it began when the museum was closed to the public for renovation. So we opened it so that we would have a way to continue doing what we were doing and reaching out to the public via the blog. Um, And that one honestly is the most work and the hardest because, you know, you're publishing full-length articles, um, you know, that have to be reviewed. They have to have the images just right. They have to be edited just right. Um, And they take a lot longer to produce than a single tweet. 
So when you know an anniversary is coming up or a special holiday or some opportunity to talk about a certain topic, you have to start planning like two or three months ahead of time. Um, and I am not always excellent at that. And the people who help write the blog posts are not always excellent at that. Um, so honestly, the blog, I would say, is the hardest one um, to manage. I also, I really struggle to decide exactly what to put on Instagram because it has to be that perfect combination of a really stunning photo or video and like some text that isn't too long um, or isn't too short. Every time I post text that seems just the right length, I have all these people asking a million questions about <laughs> what I've posted. So then I kind of err on the side of going longer and giving out more information. So I would say the blog is really hard just because of the review process and the time that goes into each blog post. Instagram is hard because you really, you want to be a little snooty about your image quality. Twitter is not hard because each tweet just matters, you know, a little less because you can do so much, you know, the volume on Twitter is higher. Um, and Facebook is hard right now because they're not showing our, our posts to everybody. So that makes it really hard to like um, really invest in it because, you know, our numbers have just been really low lately. Um, even though we're doing really similar, like our strategy has been high quality content really regularly, great images, great stories that has worked in the past and now it's not working. So I'm willing to try new things, but I'm not willing to pay Facebook <laughs> to promote post. So I'd say each of them have their own challenges, but I really enjoy kind of working my way through those and trying to strategize around them and, you know, see what works this week. Um, but it can, it can make it hard to plan in advance. You know, we used to get a lot of our blog traffic from Facebook. And since that is crashing right now, you know, our, it, making it look like our blog isn't as popular, which isn't true. Um, it's just getting less people from Facebook to the blog. So challenges everywhere, but they're all fun to tackle. Yeah. Well, that was really illuminating. It's really interesting to hear your perspective um, on these different platforms because, you know, from my perspective, I, you know, don't know what it's like to actually manage um, museum social media. So thank you. Um, would you say that your personality is ever reflected in your posts? I think you have to have a personality because it's called social media. Um, yeah. So if you're going to be a social individual, you, you want to have a nice personality. I hate socializing with people who are jerks or who are boring. <laughs> so we try not to be jerks and we try not to be boring, um, which is pretty easy to do, to not be too dull. But once you get into like, okay, let's be interesting, let's be exciting, let's be engaging, exactly what does that look like? Um, and where is your line between humor, sarcasm, how many puns are too many puns, how, too many Hamilton references can be good or bad. <laughs> um, and you want to be, I mean, I really aim to be like a little bit nerdy, a little bit geeky, but then that can be sort of a challenge for me because I don't necessarily know everything about our collection. And to be a true nerd, you have to have a lot of knowledge. Um, so sometimes I feel like that persona works to a point and then it doesn't work anymore. Um, I used to work at the Postal Museum, like I said, and uh, we had this dog that had social media. Um, his name was Oni the dog and he had Facebook and Twitter. Um, and it was really interesting creating his personality because he was an animal and he could say woof and he could like be silly. Um, so we created a whole kind of like 
almost dating profile for Oni so that he would um, be in character. Because, you know, we he never talked in history. He was a dog. Um, so we didn't have direct quotes from him. We didn't have, you know, his voice. So we had to create that from scratch. That was a really good practice exercise to create what a brand's voice should sound like. Um, so, yeah, if you envision you're in a museum as, like, a dog or a lion or a cat or something like that, maybe it's a fun way to think about it. But, yeah, I do feel like my personality comes through. Um, but I do worry sometimes that we're being a little too dry and just balancing that has been really hard. Yeah. Um, thank you. So you, um, you wrote a post, um, about best practices for live social media that engage museum audiences. Um, mm -hmm. And so you know what works and doesn't work, or you, you know, try different approaches. Um, have, is there one approach that you tried in a live social media event that didn't work out well? Let me think. Um, I get to do so few live social media events because um, they do require so much more logistics than doing things that are only digital. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. We, I do a couple tweet-ups a year. I try to do a couple tweet-ups a year. But honestly, Facebook Live is making that less necessary. Like, it used to be that in order to um, really share, an ex like, a new exhibition, for example, that just opened on social media, that we really had to do a tweet-up and invite other people to come share that exhibit with the public with us. But now that we have Facebook Live, it can be, um, that can be a really powerful way to do it too. And then you're not inviting 30 people. You're not really having to write the same level of memos. You don't have to find goodie bags or make name tags. I mean, there's a lot of things for on-site events that um, are really event planning and not so much, you know, digital strategy. <laughs> so my event planning skills are like way weaker now that I don't work at Postal Museum anymore. <laughs> um, so that kind of stuff can be really, you know, you got to relearn that stuff every time. Um, but we did recently do a tweet up and it worked really well. Um, we had two exhibitions to see. One was inside and one was actually a Smithsonian Gardens exhibition. Um, and I think what worked well with that is that the museum was closed when we were doing the exhibition, um, doing the tweet up. So uh, people really got this like exclusive tweetable tour. Our speakers were great. It was awesome. Um, and then we went outside to look at the Smithsonian Gardens exhibition, which related to the exhibit we had just toured. And it was really warm out. And it's harder to see your screen in really bright sunlight. Um, and some of the plants that the garden staff wanted us to look at were in the direct sun. Um, and I could just see that that was, you know, that's a challenging thing for a tour group to be in direct sun. So um, we had a little bit of a rocky, just figuring it out kind of situation. And then the Smithsonian Garden staff member quickly was like, oh, I realize what's happening here. I'm going to go in the shade. And then she found some plants to talk about in the shade, and it worked great. <laughs> um, and what was really shocking is that the Wi-Fi kept working outside the building. Because um, I assumed, you know, the minute we went off Wi-Fi, everyone would be like, oh, now I have to use my data to send all these tweets. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tweet as much or whatever. Um, but the Wi-Fi was still working, so I just I felt like that was such a fortuitous situation um, once we got out of the direct sun. So, I mean, that worked pretty well. Um, I did one time do a, um, a tweet-up about a topic that I didn't think worked. Um, it was, uh, let's see, tweet-ups work really well when there's little 
um, facts that, or facts or fun facts or micro stories, maybe objects, photos, et cetera, that don't have to tie together very well. Um, you know, people thread their tweets now, which is really nice, but uh, do you remember before people used to do that? It was, you know, you would encounter a tweet here, a tweet there. You might not know what the first tweet in the series was. Um, so I had done a previous tweet up that was a very popcorn-like exhibition. You could just snack on that content. Each piece of popcorn, you know, stood on its own. You could experience it on its own. Um, but then I was like, oh, that's so great. We'll do another tweet up. So we did one about this one woman um, who survived the Holocaust and eventually moved to America. And so her story had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you missed part of it, it just didn't make sense. Um, <laughs> so that was not as successful, I would say, um, for Twitter in particular, because, you know, we were 20 minutes into the tweet up and we're talking about this woman named Camilla who survived the Holocaust. And people are like, wait, wait, where was she born? What, did she die in the Holocaust? You know, the, the response from the public was like very befuddled. So I would say that topic did not work. <laughs> it just wasn't a good match between the content and the, um, the format, like maybe that would have worked as a Facebook Live where you have maybe people staying a little longer through the program, but it really didn't work as like these little micro stories. Yeah, yeah, you're kind of touching into the next question, which is about um, whether you feel that some public programs are better suited than others for digital engagement. And, you know, you mentioned that the content um, and the subject, you know, can, um, can have an effect on that. So are there any types of public programs that you think are better suited than others? Well, I've been wondering what's going to happen to the live tweeting of a longer format program. Because um, remember, I don't know, there was a while on Twitter where you would just encounter people live tweeting from something for quite a long time like it would be like a three-hour event and someone would be live tweeting the entire thing um, and there was attention span for that and now I feel like that might be audiences aren't expecting that or aren't wanting that as much um, and I hadn't really thought about it until the other day I went on Twitter and I saw a museum that was live tweeting a lecture about I don't know women in art or something and I was like whoa this is so weird like they think we're gonna watch this like that someone would follow this for an hour you know like this isn't this isn't snackable there's breaking news happening in between these tweets like you know I don't know if America has changed or Twitter has changed or maybe the rise of easy webcasting or live streaming has impacted it but I was just really surprised that that format just felt such a like such a throwback um, and I think there may still be a place for it but is that really the best way to experience you know it is a lecture really compatible anymore um, with something like this. So I, I don't know. I, I think there's some formats and some topics that do work really well. We tried last week to do um, this whole week on um, a certain part of medical history. It was about antibodies or antibody-based technology in medical history. Um, and I had a really hard time fitting that in particular onto Twitter. But it worked really well on Instagram, which I did not expect. Um, and the reason I thought it wouldn't work on Instagram was because the stuff is really gross. Like, it's like about um, rabies and snake bite antivenom and polio and horrible syphilis diseases and just really 
unattractive objects. Um, and usually I try to find like pretty and, you know, colorful things for our Instagram audiences, but they freaked out and loved like weird vaccine fixed pictures and stuff like that. So I was really impressed. Um, and I just, I wasn't expecting that to work and it really, really worked. So, you know, that, and that story required you to read, like to really understand what that picture was, you had to read quite a few sentences. Um, so I would say that that particular content, I just couldn't make it make sense on Twitter. It was, you know, not snackable enough. But for some reason, the attention, the medium-sized attention span of Instagram worked really, really well. Um, but, yeah, I do a lot less uh, program, like, covering of on-site programs at the museum. Like, tomorrow we have um, a bunch of roundtable discussions that are going to be webcast. And the only tweets we're doing are, um, okay, this this discussion is starting now, tune in. And then this discussion is starting now, tune in. So we're not going to do like, here's a quote from the discussion. Here's like an interesting, you know, we're not going to do that. We're just going to say like, you know, the discussion on um, Mexican American food is starting now. Okay. The discussion on Chinese American food is starting now. And that's it. Um, Cause I just don't, I don't think that our audiences are, are wanting to consume our program like that um, as much as maybe they used to be. Um, when there was less breaking news every five minutes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on how audiences' expectations have changed and what you're doing to, um, uh, you know, react to that. Um, so for the, you worked on the Keep Them Ruby campaign, and as a side to um, any students that listen in the future, that's a Kickstarter campaign that uh, raised funds to preserve Dorothy's ruby slippers. Um, you hosted chats, Q&A sessions with experts, and opportunities for the audience to share their memories. Do you have any thoughts about what worked best or what you might do differently for a future um, Kickstarter campaign um, initiative? That's a good question because um, the National Museum of African American History and Culture launched theirs just a few days ago. So I don't know if you've been following that one, but they're raising money for a hip hop anthology and it's a really, really cool project. So um, not to ask students for money, but you guys should all go donate. <laughs> um, so the hardest thing about Kickstarter is that it's 30 days of content. Um, and you have 30 days to raise that money. And if you don't raise it, you don't get it. Um, you know, there's no partial credit. There's no like, oh, you almost met your goal. Here's 50%. You just don't get anything. So it's a lot of pressure. Um, and 30 days can seem very long, can also seem very short. The first thing I learned um, during the Kickstarter campaign is that you cannot have the same message for 30 days. Um, you know, the ruby slippers are one of our most popular objects, but we had to find every different angle on them that we could think of. Um, and I got a little desperate at certain times <laughs> during that campaign because you can't just say the ruby slippers are important to American history, please give. So, you know, one day we had to talk about the conservation efforts to ruby slippers. You know, then we would talk about um, how the movie was produced. And then we would talk about are there other pairs of ruby slippers? You know, how did they know to cast Judy Garland? You know, it's just every angle. Um, you know, could we talk about how high school students are still doing The Wizard of Oz in school? Um, you just really run out of content really quickly if you don't have a lot of different angles to discuss. I think the current 
Kickstarter campaign that NAMAC is doing is really good because they have all these different tracks, all these different artists, all these different songs that they can talk about. And hip hop history is 40 years and people have different connections with hip hop. Um, whereas, you know, the Ruby Slippers connection, I mean, a lot of people have personal connections to the Ruby Slippers, um, but they tend to be all similar flavors. Like, oh, I watch it every year with my family or me and my grandmother always loved that movie, or I was so scared of the witch, you know, the, the relationship is, um, you know, there, there's some variety there, but with a topic like hip-hop, you can really talk about, like, your favorite songs, your different memories with hip-hop, you know, different styles and fashions, different personalities in the hip-hop world, there's just, there's a lot more there, um, or maybe there's just a lot of different variety you can go into. So 30 days is a long time. The second thing I learned is that um, you need so many more visuals than you will think that you need. Like, I am not a graphic designer, and I am not awesome at making graphics for social media. It's a very specific type of design. You have to get the sizing just right. The text can't be at the edges because it'll get cropped off. Um, it has to be readable. And there's restrictions about how you can show the Ruby slippers because the Warner Brothers, you know, company, I think, still holds the copyright to that. So you need to get some clearance from them. And so every day of the campaign, I had to think, like, how am I going to use images to tell this story and to ask for support for this project and to get people excited about it when we had, you know, maybe five good pictures of the Ruby slippers? What I needed was 35 pictures of the Ruby slippers. <laughs> Um, so I ended up doing a lot of graphic design on my own, and that was hilarious because I'm not very good at it, but I did my best. So those are the two things I learned is that just the volume and the variety of content you need is really high, and you just you have to vary your message throughout those 30 days, and that you, if you don't have good visuals and good video clips and stuff like that, you're sunk because it's really hard to develop those on the fly. Um, okay, thank you. Um, so, um, the American History Museum receives a lot of new object donations, or not necessarily a lot, you know, when they can acquire um, those objects, um, and recently the Jim Henson puppets. Um, many are iconic and hold a special place in the hearts of Americans. Do you have an approach to tapping into the memories and personal experiences of people through digital engagement? That's a good question. I mean, there's almost nothing that we collect that nobody has a connection to. Typically when we're collecting, it's because it's so important to American history that it's like, you know, a touch point for people. Um, but I have had trouble sometimes connecting um, a particular story to audiences that we already have. So our current audiences, they already love the Ruby Slippers, they already love the Muppets. It's not hard to get them excited about those things. But when we merge into new collecting areas, that can be tricky and you really have to use um, leverage partners to help get your message to the right people and then get those people to share their memories with you because that makes it much more powerful. Um, so we recently collected some stuff from Selena who is this, um, really amazing singer who she died too young um, and uh, you know she really changed uh, music and fashion and pop culture she was just this incredible person um, and you know there's she has some real hardcore fans like there are people who still love Selena 
um, and listen to her music every day and, you know, wear the makeup line that was inspired by her and stuff. Sorry, there's some kids on this bus. And um, so we collected some Selena stuff, but we had not talked about Selena a whole lot on our social media. Um, so I had to go around sort of like talking to the other museums that relate to her, other heritage organizations, a lot of Hispanic heritage um, stuff. Luckily, we did it during Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, but we did occasionally ask people, you know, what's your Selena memory? Like, what, what is valuable to you about Selena? Um, and what was really powerful is we did have a blog post where three different women from three different organizations or three different generations who work at my museum, they all reflected on what Selena meant to them. So one of them is a little bit older, and her memories of Selena are much more solid because she was an adult when Selena was alive. And she had some memories of Selena and, you know, it was important to her as her identity as a Texan. And then um, we had a young woman in her like thirties who didn't like Selena when she was a kid and then um, kind of came to like her over the years and came to identify with her after she died. Um, and then we had a intern who was really, really young, who barely remembered, I mean, she don't even think she remembered Selena at all. She was probably like one when Selena was alive. Um, but her mom listened to Selena in the car. And so she shared her memories of like sharing Selena's music with her mom. So these three different women from these three different eras um, and different parts of the country and different parts of Hispanic heritage, like landscape, shared their stories. And the public did really respond to that. You know, people were talking about their memories and it really inspired them. So sometimes we have to model the behavior we want. So if we want people sharing stories with us, we have to share stories with them. Um, so we don't always talk about like our personal memories of, of our objects, um, but in that case, it really made sense too. And I was really, really glad that we happened to have an intern and two staff members who had something to say about that. Um, so it's kind of like modeling the memory sharing behavior you want. Yeah, that's a really interesting strategy what you mentioned, um, modeling the behavior you want. Um, and, and kind of showing examples um, so that people feel comfortable posting because it seems like, and this is just from my own, you know, reading and research, not not quite experienced, is that people will feel um, a little bit timid to engage with the post if they're not sure, like, what an answer should look like. Is that something you've noticed? Um, can you say the last part of that question one more time? Sorry. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, just from you know some of the readings I've done, it seems that people um, may feel a little bit timid um, with engaging um, in a social media post unless they see an example of you know what what other people are posting. And so just leading into how you talked about um, modeling the behavior you want to see. Yeah, that is really true. Um, when we do Facebook Live, we're always asking the public, you know, do you have any questions? Do you have any questions? What do you want to know about this exhibit? Um, and it'll be radio silence, even though you can see that lots of people are watching. So what I've done is I've um, put an appointment on the staff's calendar, just different staff members who I know use Facebook and would probably want to watch the tour and just said, like, can you please sign up to ask a question? Here are some suggested questions. You can ask anything you want, but just ask something during this tour um, so that we're able to say, like, wow, Tim from Washington, D.C. wants to know, but really Tim works for the museum. Um, but once the public sees that, like, oh, this, that's how you do it, Tim asked a question that wasn't, you know, it's not the most sophisticated question in the world. It doesn't have to be scholarly. It doesn't have to be academic. 
I mean, you can ask, like, what's your favorite object? Hey, you know, curator, tell me, like, what was hard about this exhibit? What's funny about this exhibit? Um, then questions from the public start rolling in. So we're really trying to model the behavior of, like, here's what we're looking for. Um, and asking them questions can be really good, too. People really like um, to talk about what their favorite is. Um, so a lot of times that's where we start, is what's your favorite Muppet? What's your favorite Selena song? Um, and then from there, they can go into sharing memories. Because just share your memories, that's like a really personal question. You know, what do you remember? Um, so instead we say, um, you know, if we're doing food history, like, what's your favorite food? What did, you, what did your parents cook when you were little? That kind of thing. Um, and usually someone gets the ball rolling. But it can be really painful when you put a question out there and get radio silence. Um, Nina Simon has a great blog post about a really good question she saw in the museum exhibition about World War II. And it was basically like if um, rationing, because, you know, they rationed food during World War II. If rationing came back, what food would you miss most? And people were, wrote their answer on little post-it notes. And I thought that was such a great question because it was, um, it was all you were saying is like what you would miss but it was kind of making you think what would it be like to live back then? And like that added just enough critical thinking to it that it wasn't just what's your favorite food, obviously it's chocolate. It was what food would you miss? And I, I thought that was really graceful. So I'm always thinking about that example um, when I'm trying to phrase a question for our social media audiences. Uh, thank you. So um, you've worked on, you know, many new initiatives and you've tried out um, a lot of new approaches um, for new media. So do you have strategies for measuring success um, in, with your own work? And how do, you, how do you approach measuring success? I think that's probably the hardest part of my job is to measure success and to define success. Um, for a long time, I just felt like any reaction from the public was good because um, I came from a much smaller museum um, where we just, you know, we didn't have as big an audience. We didn't have as many people who could contribute content. Um, so, you know, when I first started at American History, I was like, wow, like people liked it. Like this is the best thing that's ever happened. Um, and then more recently I have tried to really define, you know, what does success look like? What are my expectations for this, this initiative or this project? Um, for that uh, medical history um, campaign that I was just talking about, about antibodies, um, you know, the numbers of people that we reached were not super high. Um, you know, I think we reached every person who cared about that part of medical history, but, you know, we didn't, we didn't reach, you know, bajillions of people. It didn't go viral by any means. Um, you know, it was, it was a modest audience size, but I think we reached a lot of the people who really cared about that. So to report on that and to talk about the success of that project, I really relied on audience comments. Um, so I, uh, I went through and copied every good comment or every meaningful comment we got from Instagram. I categorized them into different categories of reactions. Like some people were just showing appreciation. Other people were like sharing a personal story. Other people were asking a follow-up question. Quite a few people were comparing um, medical care in the past versus today. Um, and sort of saying like, oh, I'm so glad that vaccines exist, but also um, even more complicated comments like you know it's really interesting that people with um, like tuberculosis for example they often had civil rights taken away from them because they weren't sure how tuberculosis spread and like you know how is that similar or different from today so people were doing a bunch of critical thinking 
and categorizing that comment to me, you know, really helped me see the range of reactions that we had from people, um, which just felt like more than just saying like, oh, we had 200 comments. It was like, we had 15 comments where people shared stories. We had 20 comments where people asked questions. We had, you know, 32 comments where people showed appreciation. Um, and that felt really good. I also made like a word cloud of the comments so you could see the most commonly um, commented words. And one was interesting. And I was like, hey, if people are saying our content is interesting, I'm happy. Like that makes me really happy at the end of the day. That, to me, that's more than like, so we got thousands of likes, you know, people took the time to write, this is really interesting, or to say thank you. Um, so yeah, measuring success and defining success is really, really challenging. And it's the thing I've been spending a lot of my um, time freaking out and working on uh, lately. Well, thank you for, um, you know, your overview from your perspective. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's one thing to study how in a graduate course, how to measure success, but then I imagine on the job um, what it would be like to, to actually keep up with that. So I'm always curious, you know, what do people actually do? Um, so as you know, um, digital media trends change so quickly. Um, do you have any advice for museum professionals that want to keep up with current trends, or how do you keep up with current trends? Um, I rely on my network of other social media managers who I follow on a Facebook group and on Twitter to tell me when something is changing. <laughs> um, and they are so well connected and so aware and somehow have time to read that they are like really good at saying in advance like, oh, hey, Facebook is changing or, oh, hey, we're seeing this trend happening. Um, I subscribe to a couple blogs and stuff like that, but typically I'm finding out about things because my network is talking about them. Um, and the other thing I would say is that really good storytelling and really high-quality visuals are never going to go out of style. So even if you have a really busy month and you can't read, you know, all the cool tech blogs or, like, all the cool museum education blogs or whatever, like, you cannot go wrong with a good story and a good image or video or graphic to go with it. Um, so sometimes I worry that, you know, I'll just be on this treadmill of like, you know, what is, you know, now Twitter's going to 280 characters. Oh my God, do we have to edit every tweet to be longer? And, you know, now Instagram is going to have an algorithm and they're going to hide our content. What do we do? What do we do? Um, but it's really helpful just to remember that, you know, being social on social media is the important thing, telling really good stories, answering questions, engaging, and having a great, you know, eye-catching thing to go with it. Like you cannot go wrong if those are the things that you're doing. Um, so I always love talking to grad students because they're like, we read this thing. And I'm like, I better go read that thing. <laughs> um, so I do as much reading as I can. I stay as aware as I can. But, you know, you cannot spend your whole day researching new trends and, and preparing for new trends. Sometimes you have to um, actually do your job and actually schedule content and actually edit blog posts and stuff. And in those cases, those busy weeks, I just try to remember that as long as we're telling good stories and we're keeping an eye on our quality that we'll be doing really well. Um, thank you. Yeah, you said that you love talking to grad students. So do you have any advice for emerging museum professionals that might want to shift towards a career in new media? Um, I would say uh, definitely be on Twitter and definitely follow the 
um, other social media managers and marketing people and museum educators and um, network with them. Um, I would say that's a really big part of just being part of that network and, you know, angling for a good job and finding out about jobs that are opening up and stuff like that. Um, and I would also be really good at one other thing. Like social media is really important. It's really cool. It's a great field. Um, but I'm, I feel really lucky to bring like a museum education background to it. Um, so I would have like one other focus area, whether that's a content area or, you know, maybe you're really excellent at evaluation or maybe you're really excellent at um, project management or serving on an exhibition team. Like that combination just makes you a really, really winning candidate. Um, you know, you're breaking through that job interview because everybody is going to be able to say, I can do Twitter, I can do Facebook, I can do Tumblr. Well, of course you can. They're consumer products. They're for the public. It's just pressing buttons. Like, technically it's very easy, but it's really hard to manage a brand. Um, so everyone in that application pilot is going to say, like, oh, yes, I'm great at Twitter. Well, of course you are. Um, but being good at one, one additional thing, one additional focus area can be really great. And especially if you have um, skills in, like, the evaluation area, I think that's always really valuable because you're able to, like, bring so much more value to a project. You're saying, you know, not only am I going to implement this project, I'm going to be able to check in along the way and evaluate based on our goals. Um, so I think that's some of my advice. Let me think. What else would I tell grad students? Obviously, internships are important. Informational interviews are important. Sharing what you're learning is important. Um, I see a lot of really awesome social media by grad students, um, especially when they're in a class that's forcing them to tweet or forcing them to post on Facebook or forcing them to write blog posts or whatever. But kind of keeping that up in between courses, I think, can be really great. Um, and I would, you know, right now separate personal from professional profiles so that you've got a space where you can talk about margaritas and going shopping or whatever, and then a space where you can talk about your professional life um, and make that really Googleable. Uh, that's a, some advice I always give to our interns is just that you really want your real name to come up and you want your real social media profiles to come up. And when they do, you want them to be um, just really interesting, really professional, maybe one or two dog photos, but that's it. <laughs> Um, well, thank you. Yeah, that I'm thinking about my which class to take next semester, and you're talking about evaluation, and I'm like, okay, maybe I will take evaluation. Um, so you should, because no one has money to do it. Like, museums do not do a great job at raising money to do evaluation, so having someone with any in-house skills is really valuable. Like, that is worth its weight in gold. Even if you're just doing, like, a super awesome survey or, like, a really quick focus group, like, just being familiar with evaluation techniques, do it. It's really, really valuable. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was our last question. Um, you, this has been so valuable, and you've given so much good advice. I'm looking forward to going back and, you know, taking notes. Um, so, I just thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to ask or add um, before you go for tonight? Let me think. I don't think so. I mean, at the end of the day, doing social media is supposed to be about people. It's supposed to be about humans. It's supposed to be really fun. Um, 
I almost never get a chance to be on the museum floor anymore. And I feel like the longer I go without interacting with our real visitors, exploring our real exhibits, um, the less good our social media is. So, you know, a lot of people's first jobs um, in the museum field are like all on the floor, like doing visitor services, doing public programs. And then they slowly move into the office and they don't find as much time to go back and talk to the actual visitors. And that would be my one final message is that the real people is what really matters. That's why I do this. So just keep the social and social media, make it really personality driven, really human. And you'll be awesome social media managers one day. And hopefully, you know, earn a million dollars and have great jobs. <laughs> and thank you for sticking. I'm so sorry to be on the bus during this conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to the entire S2 bus ride. So, <laughs> so thank you. Oh, no, yeah. Thank you so much for making time um, for this tonight. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, 